0: Welcome, everybody, to Faith Is. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and I'm so glad to welcome you to this either last of the year or first of the year, however you want to think about it, program, where we're going to talk about how to have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. That's what faith is, absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And that's what we try to help each other with. We stretch in God's direction. We try to be the people God has called us to be. And today on the program, we're going to take a look at a classic passage of Scripture that kind of bridges the gap from Christmas to the New Year. And yes, 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 we are still in the season of Christmas. You know, culturally, we tend to think, well, once once the Christmas Day happens, Christmas is over. But as the church year goes, Christmas goes on. We celebrate Christmas for a while You know, we anticipate the coming of Jesus, that's Advent, and we anticipate his birth and we remind ourselves to anticipate his coming again, that's Advent, the weeks leading up to Christmas. And then once we have Christmas Day, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, then we celebrate the arrival of Jesus, the birth of Jesus. So Advent is anticipation, and then Christmas is incarnation, he's here. You know, when a baby is born in our families, we don't just say, okay, the baby's here and that's the end of it. No, that's just the beginning of it. And so Christmas continues because we celebrate the arrival of a baby, the arrival of a special baby in this case, the Savior of the world, and we remember his incarnation. And then as we look ahead, and and we'll do that a little bit too, we look ahead to the next season of the church year. The church year has seasons like our calendar years do. But we go from Advent to Christmas to Epiphany. And Epiphany is a big fancy word, and I've looked for other words to try to help us with that. But really, it just means the revelation of Jesus, and particularly the revelation of Jesus to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles, that's many of us. And so we want to talk about the idea of Epiphany, and we we trace that with the arrival of the wise men. So that's kind of where we're going. And then And then um, at the end of the program, I want to give you a tip, just a little something to think about. People are making New Year's resolutions these days, and maybe you've given up on that, or maybe you've decided this is the year it's going to work for you. Well, wherever you are, I just want to give you an idea to consider, and maybe it'll help you as you consider a New Year's resolution, because really, New Year's resolutions are really simple. They're just things that we would like to do differently in our lives. There are things we'd either like to improve or, or stop doing. Or we think if we would do something different, that it would make a difference. And I'm just going to touch on that a little bit when we get toward the end of the program. So let's plunge in. Here we are, developing our confidence in God. And, and I've been thinking about this for a while, and since we're still thinking in terms of Christmas because Christmas isn't over until the arrival of the wise men and that's celebrated on January 6th by the way maybe celebrated in some churches this weekend maybe next weekend but I've been thinking about this idea of Christmas and and there's um there's a passage in the Bible that's always kind of gotten my imagination lit up I don't I don't know how to explain that very well it's just kind of one of those places in the Bible that, that appeals to me. It kind of gives me something to think about. It, it helps my imagination. And now maybe an idea that help you with that is maybe you have a verse that every time you think about it or hear it, it just does something to you in a way that other verses don't. You just identify with it or resonate with it. Maybe it's a Bible story, A lot of us have favorite Bible stories. I was told when I was a kid, my favorite Bible story was Daniel in the lion's den. Well, I don't remember that. I do like the stories of Daniel from the book of Daniel, but I don't remember that that was my favorite in particular, but that's what I was told. So maybe you have some things like that. Maybe you have a favorite paracope from the Bible. Oh, there I go. I use a word that, that you don't need to know, and you can live all your life without knowing what it means, but, but it, comes out now and then. That's simply a section of Scripture. I was a long time into being a, a minister and a student of the Bible before I heard anybody use that term. But maybe there's a section of Scripture that appeals to you, and somehow it gets your imagination. Um, it could be something like the Sermon on the Mount. It could be the, the Beatitudes, the beginning part of the Sermon on the Mount. It could be most anything. Well, there is, there is one that gets my attention, and and so I got to thinking about that, and as I thought about it, the way the passage opens, it, it prompted another question. So I began to think about that, and I thought, hmm, what is the Christmas word? You know, if you could come up with one word that you would say, this, this really encapsulates or describes or, or helps me know what Christmas is about, what would you say is the Christmas word? Well, I've thought about that for a little while. There's a lot of potential words we could nominate for the Christmas word. A lot of people might nominate peace because there's a lot of talk about peace on earth, goodwill toward men during this time of the year. And people like the idea of peace, the absence of conflict. When there's war going on, we want peace. We don't want people to suffer and die in a war. So peace might be the Christmas word or And I know some people are going to quickly mention the idea of Savior or Jesus. That has to be the Christmas word. And yeah, I I get that. That surely would be. But I was looking for something a little different than the name of Jesus. Now, Savior isn't the name, but it's certainly a description. And it's important because he came to be the Savior of the world. So that's a good candidate. I don't know if that would be your Christmas word. And I'm not suggesting there has to be one and only one Christmas word. I was trying to think, what might we choose? Well, we might choose Emmanuel. Because that's a Christmas word used in the Christmas story in Matthew. And, and it's it's very straightforward, meaning God with us. And of course, we talk about incarnation and God being with us. And Emmanuel, that's all part of the Christmas story. So Emmanuel might very well be the Christmas word for you. But maybe you would choose a word like king, because, and we'll talk about them a little bit more, the the wise men. We're looking for the king, the one who was born king of the Jews. So maybe maybe king would be your Christmas word. There's a lot of potential words, but I was thinking about this, and the Christmas word that occurred to me is a word that's, well, a word. In John chapter 1, verse 1, and that's the beginning of the section that I mentioned earlier that always gets my imagination going, it starts out, In the beginning was the word. And I was thinking about this, and I said to myself, the Christmas word is word, or more specifically, the word that's used there by the writer John is Logos, L-O-G-O-S, Logos. And it has a layer of meanings and a lot of connections that can be made, many more connections than we want to make today, that's for sure. And to to his environment, he would have thought of it maybe in a Greek context, or maybe more in an Old Testament context. We're not sure about that. Um, probably because of his connection to Judaism, it would have been more of an Old Testament context than than a Greek context, context. So logos became the word that I chose. And I looked into that. And as I said, there's so many things. and And then I came across the idea. And that's in the passage I want to read with us and I want to think about and talk about a little bit today from John chapter 1 verse 1 and I cannot I've thought about this tried to figure out why this particularly appeals to me I cannot say for sure it may have come from a Christmas musical that I directed when I was a music director years ago but something about this passage always kind of draws me into it and causes me to think about it. And, and it tells us some important things right up front in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And that tells us right away that the word refers to Jesus and Jesus was there in the beginning. That means before anything started that we know as creation, there was Jesus and he was there with God. So Jesus is God and Jesus has always been, always will be. Uh, but then there's a verse, toward the end, and it's the last verse I want to read that really gets my attention, and I want to talk some more about that. But first, let's read from John chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. I'm going to read from the New Revised Standard Version, updated edition, maybe a little different than what you're using, but it's the same ideas. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overtake it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. Who believed in His name, He gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood, or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory as of a Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. And it's that last verse in particular in this passage from John that gets my attention. And I usually think of it in the way I first heard it, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And that just somehow speaks to my imagination, speaks to my heart. Uh, I don't really... know very well I'm supposed to be able to explain this better i guess they don't really know very well how to explain how it seems to affect me but i have all often and always been drawn to that text i probably haven't spent a lot of time in it in terms of my public teaching because i'm would be afraid i would overdo it for people but i've been looking at it and thinking about it and i want us to talk about that idea now i said the idea of logos or word and that's the Christmas word that I'm referring to is logos has a lot of potential meanings and connections for us. And we're not going to make all of those, but, but I want to make a connection that's made in, in verse 14 and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, one English translation says, instead of dwelt among us says he moved into the neighborhood. And I think that's kind of cool. There's a house seems like all the time being built in my neighborhood and wouldn't it be cool if Jesus moved into the neighborhood moved into that house but then I got to thinking you know he's moved into your neighborhood and mine in the people of God and the people that are his followers so he's moved into the neighborhood wherever you are so good for you be be his representative in your neighborhood the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, I've been thinking about that, how to, how to encapsulate some of those thoughts into something that we can readily take away from it, from it and, and take with us. And I thought about those two ideas, grace and truth. He was incarnate. He became a person, a person, a living human being and he walked among us, and he reflected the glory of the Father because he was full of grace and truth. So let's explore that a little bit. Let's explore those ideas of grace and truth because there's a lot of of connections we can make and a lot of things that can help us by exploring that. A lot of things to think of when it comes to grace, and, and personally, I think that shows us the personal nature of God. God reveals himself as personal. And it seems to me that grace is the word we use most often to kind of get that idea of a personal God. God is a person, a real human being, a person that extends grace to us. And on that level, we should also consider that Grace has implied in it, in our understanding of grace, the gift of salvation. Because we talk, talk about that being a gift of grace. For by grace are we saved through faith. And it is the gift of God. So God gives us the gift of salvation through grace. And I like that, and I think that's very helpful. But it's not enough because we don't understand this idea of grace correctly, most of us. And one of the things I've been trying to do is to help people think about it more correctly because we tend to use the word grace as a get-out-of-jail-free card with God, that, well, we live under grace, and so God's going to let me get away with whatever I get away with, and, and he knows my heart, and if I do wrong, he still knows I think nice things about him, and so he'll have grace toward me because we're not under law anymore, and I can't imagine the mental gymnastics some of us go through, and we need to knock that stuff off. Because grace is not God's get out of jail free card for us. Grace does not mean God overlooks our nonsense. Grace is a gift that leads to salvation, and we need to understand it better. So, I wrote a definition of grace a few years ago. I I don't use it as often as I think about it, I guess because, again, I don't want to bore people with the same old thing that i think about but it has consistently been useful to me and so i want us to think about that in this context today and my definition is simple grace is the gift of god that enables the people of god to fulfill the will of god so this idea of grace means that that we have the opportunity to receive from god the gift of salvation And we talk about it being a free gift without strings attached, and that's true. But it is not a free gift without expectations. No, we can't earn this gift of grace from God, or grace gift. It's not about earning. It's not about deserving. You see, this idea of grace was very well understood in ancient times, and it's not very well understood by us in the way they understood grace. But in those days, a grace gift could be something that would benefit the receiver so that they could do something worthwhile with it. And the giver, the the person who gave the grace gift, would be repaid by the satisfaction that something good came out of that gift. So, for example, a wealthy person in ancient times might give a grace to their city to build a park. And so they would have that built, the city would, and the, the giver didn't expect anything back from it. It was satisfaction enough for them to see that their gift, their grace gift, was put to good use and benefited the community with a park where people could go and enjoy themselves. That was a grace gift. There was reciprocity involved because every grace gift In ancient times included reciprocity and the reciprocity was make good use of this gift that i'm giving you and make a very nice park with using that money and so that was the reciprocal opportunity that the people who received the gift could have in the same way sometimes wealthy people would would give a gift a grace to a person to help them do something they couldn't do otherwise and maybe they wanted to start a business Maybe they wanted to start a bakery. I don't know. could be most anything. And they would go to this person who had the means. Now, we might go to a venture capitalist, you know, and, and ask for some money. And they would put some strings attached to it and expect, without a doubt, to get their money back. So it's not exactly like that. But it's, it's similar because the, the benefactor at ancient times might give you or me the capital we needed to get started and to have a bakery. And the idea was that we were to make that bakery a good thing for the community and make it a service to people around us and that something good would happen from that. So the idea of of a grace was always something that included reciprocity. It was never simply a one-way thing that, that the person received and then that was it. Whoopee, they won the lottery of grace. No, that's that's not it. It's it's, it's given to be a benefit, and the person who gave it always expected to see something good happen from it, but they did not expect to be repaid or anything like that. It was a gift without strings in that sense, but it was a gift that had expectation that it would be a benefit to people. So there was some sense of reciprocity. So, grace is the gift of God, and I tend to think of that as the gift of salvation. There are other gifts from God. But the gift of grace that results in salvation makes us the people of God. So I said grace is the gift of God that enables the people of God to fulfill the will of God. So we've talked about it being a gift of grace, a gift of salvation. And then that gift of salvation makes us the people of God, the church, if you will, because of the grace of God in offering us salvation, we have become what we couldn't be otherwise, and now we are part of God's household, and and we'll talk about this in another time, we're covenant partners with God, and we become, together, collectively, the people of God. So, grace is the gift of God that results in salvation, that makes us the people of God, the church and everybody who has cooperated with grace and become one of God's people is now part of the church. It's the gift of God that enables the people of God to fulfill the will of God. Now, this is where I think it really gets helpful. And yet, this might be where people might say, hmm, what about that? Well, what about that? Well, if grace is a gift that leads to salvation, it also leads to other things, including the gift of the Holy Spirit. And if, and if grace is that gift that makes us the people of God, enabled by the Holy Spirit, then we can accomplish the will of God or fulfill the will of God, because God has given us, by His grace gift, everything we need to fulfill His will. Now, people get really sometimes a little, how should I say, hesitant at this point, because it's awfully easy to give ourselves a pass and say, well, I can't do this and I can't do that and I can't do the other thing. So, how can I fulfill the will of God? But hear me carefully on this this gift of grace is not given for no effect. God gives us the gift of grace, the gift of salvation. Forgiveness from sins, so that we can become the people of God, the church, the visible representation of Jesus in the world today, that's the church, we become the people of God, and because he gives us this grace to become his people, he includes with that grace the ability to fulfill the will of God. And so God, by his gracious gift of grace, has given us everything we need to fulfill his will. So, if there's something in your life that you just don't seem to be able to get past, let me ask you to think about that a little differently. That if God really does want you to do differently, He really will give you the way to live differently. You can fulfill the will of God. Absolutely. Now, you might need a little coaching. You might need a little support from your friends. That's why we have the people of God. That's the church. You might need a little correction now and then from someone. You might need a little clarity sometimes from other people because sometimes we think we are expected by God to do one thing and they might say to us, ah, no, not so fast. You need to do this. This is very clearly what God is doing in your life. So we get help from each other. But there's no question in my mind that A significant part of this idea of grace is that it's the gift of God that leads to salvation and makes us the people of God and gives us everything we need to fulfill the will of God. Now, we're going to talk about this some more in a future program, but let me add in here that this idea of the will of God is that we can keep the terms of our covenant relationship with God. In other words, our salvation, our standing as the people of God isn't in the abstract and just there to take or leave and to do with whatever we want to. It's not, oh good, I can go do and live however I want to because God has forgiven me and I'm one of his people. Many people take that attitude. You will see people that think kindly toward God, but they never do anything for God. They live as though God is, well, he's there, but He's there to accompany them, not them there to serve him. And we are to do our duty before God. And we keep the terms of the covenant. Now, the terms of the covenant are what we call the Bible. The Bible tells us what to do and what not to do. It tells us what God expects of us, and it tells us what God doesn't expect of us. So that's one of the beautiful things about this idea of grace is that, that by the virtue of the gift of salvation, we become the people of God, and then we can keep the covenant with God, and we can live up to God's expectations for us. Now, I didn't say you're going to live up to it perfectly. It's clear in the Bible how that works. But it says you can do it. And to the extent that we knowingly don't, that's where the problem comes. You might make a mistake. We've all made mistakes. We've all done dumb things. But it's this knowing and willfulness that we have to deal with ourselves on. So if you know something that you're supposed to be doing for God and you're not doing it, that's, that should be a huge indicator you need to fix it. If you know you need to stop doing something, God has said, don't do this, and you keep arguing with him and persisting and doing it, that's a huge indicator you need to stop that. Because grace is the gift of God that allows us to become the people of God so that we can fulfill Word of God. That's the personal thing. That's the full of grace. And now let's go on to the truth idea. So it's both both parts of this. God is personal and God is truthful. And this idea of, of Jesus being the truth is well understood as this is Jesus revealing God as the living speaking Word of God. So that when Jesus says something, and he does, and we read that in that word that he says, the statements he makes in the Bible, then that's God speaking to us. When we see what Jesus does, that's him living out the word of God. So he becomes a living example of what to do and how to live, and his speaking becomes God giving us instructions, inspiration, correction, uh, kudos, all of the rest of that. And by the way, don't be too hard on yourself. You might be doing some good things for God that you need to recognize a little bit more instead of just looking at the things that you should correct. Be glad about the things you're doing well, but correct the things that you aren't because it's two sides of the same coin. So anyway, in Jesus, we see this idea of grace. God is a personal God, personal nature of God. And we see this idea of, of God represented in Jesus Jesus, full of grace and truth. Jesus, being the living, speaking word of God, and if I had to choose one description of that, I think I would choose what the Bible chooses, and that's idea of truth. Jesus being full of grace and truth. Truth cannot be underappreciated. We live in a day of maximum deception delusion, you might say. People people want to believe what they want to believe, whether it's true or not. And they want to convince us we have to agree with them, even when it's obvious to us that it's not true. Truth is embodied, encapsulated in the life and the instruction, the inspiration of Jesus. That's the truth. And Maybe one of the best ways to think about this idea of truth, maybe the best way, and I would encourage you to think about it this way, is that truth reflects reality. And so Jesus, in his life and his teaching, reflects the reality of what is going on in our lives and in the world today. When Jesus stood before Pilate, and Pilate was interrogating him before the crucifixion, one of the Jesus, one of the things Jesus said to Pilate was that he came to testify to the truth. Don't forget, always remember that Jesus reflects reality and, th- and we can take great consolation in that. We have today people who, who are trying to twist things in so many ways and trying to, to in- expect us to agree with them, about gender nonsense and what's right and wrong nonsense, about truthfulness and lying and all of that. And we're going to talk about some of those kind of things when we come back. And in just a minute, we're going to take a little break. But don't forget, I I really want to help us to think about this, that truth is a reflection of reality. And whatever goes against reality, and what we can understand clearly, has to be suspect. And Jesus came to reflect reality to us so we could understand that and not be deceived. It's very easy for us to be deceived because we want what we want, don't we? And we want to do what we want to do too often. But Jesus came to reflect reality so we could understand what is right, what is wrong, what is so and what isn't so, and to keep us on the straight path understanding of all of that so we aren't deceived or deluded or confused and we're going to continue down this path in just a moment i'm pastor rick stevens thanks for joining us we'll be back in a minute cold and flu season is here wouldn't it be great if you had a way to minimize airborne viral threats well now there is and it's a pulvinone iodine based antiviral nasal spray called cofix rx you might even say it's just what the doctor ordered. To reduce your chance of getting hurt, you wear a safety belt when you're driving. To limit sun damage, you wear sunscreen on the beach. CoFix RX is just like that. It's an additional layer of protection. It's sold by thousands of pharmacists and medical doctors nationwide. It's made right here in the USA. Again, it's a pulvidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray. You've heard them talk about it here on the Outloud Network over and over again. Check out cofixrx.com. That's C-O-F-I-X-R-X.com for a retailer near you or use coupon code OUTLOUD for 20% off at cofixrx.com. These days, every time you turn on the news, it seems like there's a new threat to your health. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Advanced nutrition company Healthy Cell created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. and receive a 15% discount on either Falker with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. Welcome back. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and you're listening to Faith Is. We're the program where we stretch each other in God's direction because we want to have faith in Him, and where we think about faith as absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. That's a high bar, but we want to help each other get there. And we've been talking a little bit about Christmas and a Christmas word, and I suggested the Christmas word was logos, and I suggested that we could think about that in two ways. There are many other ways to think about it, but we could think about it in terms of grace and truth, because in First John, or I'm sorry, not First John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14 we read that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so we've been talking about this idea of grace and then we started on the idea of truth and we want to take that a little further now and think about what it means that that Jesus represents truth because as I'm pretty sure we're all aware, and as I've suggested, we live in a time when there's a lot of delusion and deception out there, We've always been kind of, how should I say, alert to when people tell us the truth or they don't tell us the truth. And yet today we see people trying to make up the truth as though it's something they can manufacture into whatever they want it to be. And we all know that that's not so because I suggest that Jesus, as the living speaking word of God, reflects reality. And that's what it means when we think of truth as a reflection of reality, that which is so that which is right, that which is correct. And too many times today people want to make all kinds of things so incorrect, and they obviously are not. So let's continue down this idea of, of the idea of truth. And, and Jesus certainly does reflect reality. And one of the things that that's true about Jesus is that he means what he says. And, you know, sometimes today we're not sure people mean what they say. They'll say one thing or another and try to get us to agree with them. But Jesus always says what he means and means what he says. And so when he says that we should not lie to each other, he means that. When he tells us the things that he describes in the Sermon on the Mount about how to live with each other, how to treat each other, he means that. He means what he says when he says that we're to honor God when he says that we show him that we love him, when we keep his commandments, that's what he means. And so when we try to twist things around, we are the ones at risk, not Jesus and what he says, because he means what he says. Now, the good thing about that is obvious. He means what he says. Now, uh, You might say, now, wait a minute. you keep talking about it in circles? Well, I, I don't mean to be that. I mean by that to say that there are no surprises with Jesus. He tells us straight up front how things are, how we are to be. The good news is we know where we stand with him. That could be bad news, too. I get that. But think about it. Ancient people struggled with their understanding of the gods, not the one true God. They struggled with their understanding of the gods because they never quite knew if their god was happy and so they were all often concerned with appeasing the gods so that the God wouldn't do something to them that they didn't want to have happen. And so they had to try to think about how to keep the gods happy. Well, Jesus doesn't approach us that way. He approaches us wanting to be our friend. That's, again, the idea of covenant. And he doesn't surprise us with what he promises and what he expects from us. So we don't have to think about appeasing him or or buying him off or, well, I'll do this if you'll do this for me, Jesus. No, none of that. It's a straightforward covenant relationship where he gives us his promises and his commitments to us, and he keeps them. And then he tells us what he expects from us, he expects us to keep our promises to him. Now, the idea of reality and, and truth also caused me to think about something else that goes on in our world, and this kind of makes your head explode sometimes. But we've had an awful lot of public conversation about lying. Now, I used to be that if you called someone a liar, that was an outrageous thing, and they were profoundly insulted. It was not only insulting to them, but it diminished the person who called them the liar. It was just, a, it was just an awful thing to do. But I've been thinking about that, and, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but over the past, oh, I want to say 30 years maybe, I think maybe it started in the late 1980s, maybe the early 1990s, I'm not exactly sure. But up to that point, lying was considered something you just didn't do. Now, what didn't, it wasn't that nobody lied, that's not what I'm suggesting, But but you just didn't want to lie, and you certainly didn't want to get caught. But then I noticed something shifted that we saw in public conversation. Someone would lie, and then people would talk about that, usually in the media. And instead of saying, well, he's lying, they would say, wow, yeah, he's lying, but he's so good at it. Can you imagine? Look how good. He lies so well. And it's like they, they gave a pass to a lie because it was done so artfully. Uh, you think back on that, that's pretty outrageous, but that is what happened. Well, that went on for a while, a few years, you know, an admiration for the skill of liars. And then we had another burst of of outrage at lying. People were accused, he lies all the time, and people feigned outrage. You know, they weren't outraged before when... People would lie and they would admire their skill at lying, but now they began to be outraged that someone was lying, he's lying, and he or she's lying, and they'd go back and forth and and express their outrage that someone would lie. And now I don't know that this is a hundred percent, but it's way too often. Now it's as though people say, Yeah, well, of course they're lying. Everybody lies. They all lie. And and Similar fashion, that we could continue that and say everything is a lie. It's as though people have accepted the idea of lying, and even if the liar knows they're lying and knows we know they're lying, it's continued and it's, well, sadly seems to be accepted. Well, Jesus, by contrast, tells us the truth. Everything he says is true. And he helps us understand reality and truth, because Jesus represents the truthfulness of God. He is God's gift of truth. And I've said for a while, and, and maybe you have too, that the great gift the church, the people of God have for the world today is that, is that idea of truth. We can tell the truth and help people understand the truth. And I think that's really important and significant, and we need to be people of the truth. It's really important and significant that we understand that Jesus, coming at Christmas, came full of grace and truth. And those are great gifts to us, grace and truth. We need those more than we've ever needed them today. Well, I also suggested that this time of the year, particularly in the church calendar, we remember the wise men. And I wanted to go back to Matthew and take a look at what Matthew says about the wise men and think a couple of thoughts about this idea of the wise men. We won't spend a lot of time on it, but it's worth remembering. And I want to read the story from Matthew chapter 2, starting with verse 1. It's a familiar story to many of us. It's part of the Christmas story. And if you saw a Christmas play or pageant, you would have seen some people dressed up like wise men playing the part. And I hope they did that well. I'm pretty sure they would have. But I want to read from Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, again from the New Revised Standard Version, updated edition, the story of the wise man, or the visit of the magi, we sometimes say. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, magi from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star in the east and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them, where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler, who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the Magi, and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chest, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. Well, I love the story of the wise men or the magi, whatever way you refer to them, same guys. And I'm fascinated by the connections in the Bible. And I always think about this every year, ever since I learned this many years ago, that these wise men came from the East seeking the Savior because of a star. Well, a lot of things have been written about. this. a lot of complicated astronomical things, astrological things, because they were probably both astronomers and astrologers, these wise men. And it's really quite fascinating to think, how did they know from where they were to go in search of the king? How did they know what they saw in the sky was pointing to a king? Well, there's a couple of ways they might have known. We have quite a lot of information, and it's detailed and involved. And unless you really enjoy astronomy and and the study of that, uh, you will become overwhelmed by it very quickly. But some people have done some really good work on that, and I appreciate that, even though it kind of numbs your mind to read it. But we do know from what they've done that they would have seen things in the heavens, in the stars. They studied them, these people from the east, and they would have seen things and different things that they would have seen in the sky, the way the planets move, the way the stars and everything moved across the night sky, that would have meant something to them. They kind of figured out some things, and it was a mix of astronomy and astrology. Certain types of things would have indicated the birth of someone important. Other kinds of things that took place would have given them an indication something awful was about to happen. And they they believed in that. Now, I'm not defending their belief in that. I'm just explaining that that's what was. Now, the thing that gets my attention is, okay, I can understand because we have good information about what kinds of things that would take place in the sky that they could observe would, would mean something important like the birth of a king. I can understand that. I think that's pretty straightforward. The interesting thing to me is how do they get this idea of the king of the Jews? And I don't know that we have definitive information on that, but here's what I like to, to wonder about and to think about. We know that when the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem, Well, they didn't exactly conquer it. That's the way we sometimes say it. God gave Jerusalem to Babylon because his people had had wandered way far away from him and denied him and done terrible things. So God punished them by giving Babylon the nation and by surrendering Jerusalem to Babylon. They took exiles away. Terrible thing. Took them away from home. Back to that. That was part of the spoils of war in those days. Not a pleasant thing. And they took Daniel and some of the other men from the royal court in Jerusalem to go back to Babylon to serve Nebuchadnezzar in the royal court. Well, Daniel chapter 1 tells us that, that Daniel and his friends, we refer to them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they have Hebrew names as well, they and others who are not named were instructed in all the language and literature of the Babylonians. So they had to learn everything the Babylonians wanted them to learn. And it says they excelled at it. They they did better than any of the other people that were in the the school of uh, language and literature of that day. They they were just excellent students and and mastered the material, impressed the king. And so they began to serve in the royal court and to assist the king. And Daniel chapter 1 also tells us that Daniel was given a special ability by God to understand visions and dreams. Now, that's important because in addition to studying the night sky, the wise men of Nebuchadnezzar's royal court studied visions and dreams, and they had very elaborate ways of interpreting visions and dreams. But God says in Daniel chapter 1, he gave Daniel special ability to understand visions and dreams. That's, that's important. And it plays out in the book of Daniel. Daniel is able to help avoid bloodshed and serve the king well because of what God had done for him. Well, the royal court of Nebuchadnezzar was in Babylon, the same general area that we understand the wise men came from. And so I've read this article some time ago that suggested, and nobody as far as I know can prove it, but it's fascinating to think about how God might use terrible situations to advance something good later on. But it makes me wonder, because this article suggested it, that maybe, just maybe, maybe even likely, Daniel also taught the Babylonians about the one true God, Yahweh, that he served. And maybe, maybe likely, I don't know for sure, but maybe Daniel said to them, and god has promised a messiah a king who will rule his people israel and so maybe because of that and because of what the wise men or magi saw in the sky they connected that and it helped them realize that something was happening and so they went to jerusalem first to talk to herod to find out herod consulted the scribes the Teachers of the people, and they said that, well, he's gonna be Messiah's gonna be born in Bethlehem of Judea, just down the road, a few miles. Herod sent them down there, and they went. Fascinating to read, and we don't have good understandings or explanations of this. We have some understanding, and I guess it depends on your perspective, whether it's good or not, of what it means that the star went before the wise men and stopped over the house where they found Jesus. I don't know how that worked. It's kind of fascinating. But nonetheless, God in some way led them to that house, and they found Jesus. They went in. They said they came with the intent of paying homage to the king of the Jews. Now, Herod didn't like that idea because any ruler in those days, particularly one like Herod, was concerned that somebody might rise up to take their place. And so when they came, talking about a king, that disturbed him a great deal. And, of course, you heard me read the story. It disturbed all of Jerusalem because if Herod's upset, everybody's upset because he could end up doing most anything and sometimes did. So the wise men went, they found Jesus, and they went into the house, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Now, this English translation says they knelt down. I don't know for sure, but it's reasonably likely that when they went into the house and saw Jesus, that they stretched themselves out prostrate on the floor, on the ground, because that's often the way a great person was honored in those times. So you can imagine these wealthy men from far away show up, they come in, and they bow down and pay that kind of worship to Jesus. Quite a scene, quite a statement. We don't know a lot about what was talked about, We do know Mary thought about what was going on because um, another place in the scripture talks about how she pondered all these things in her heart. So they may have had some conversation about what they saw and why they came that far. It's also interesting that Herod had instructed the wise men to come back and tell him what they found so he could go find the child. Now, there's no question we know later that, that Herod was vicious. And his intent was not to worship. His intent was to destroy. And so after the wise men arrived, paid their honor to Jesus, they heard in a dream. They went back to those visions and dreams ideas from Daniel. also makes me think more about that connection to Daniel and him teaching them in the royal court of Babylon. They had a dream. That told them not to go back to Herod, but to go home a different way. And they did. And Herod realized he had been tricked and he wasn't happy. At the same time, God had said to Joseph, Joseph, you've got to get out of here. You've got to flee because there are people that are going to come to kill Jesus. And Joseph, without a moment's hesitation, packs up his family and heads to Egypt to escape the wrath of Herod. And sure enough, Herod was intent on finding what he thought was a challenger to his rule. And he went after all the young boys of Bethlehem, killed them. Now it's interesting that Herod was holding on to this kingship and he had essentially purchased the kingship. And he was ruling because of what he had done to achieve that. But the wise men said, here is one that was born king of the Jews, an authentic ruler, not someone who just manages to rule because they have the money, but an authentic ruler who came to rule his people Israel. Really quite fascinating. The wise men went home, didn't tell Herod. Jesus and his family took off to Egypt and escaped the wrath of Herod. And I will always wonder, that's one of the things I want to find out one day, how come the wise men knew and what was going on there i'd like to have some answers to that i don't know if i'll get them but it would be nice to know don't you think the wise men the other important thing about the wise men is that here god revealed his savior to the gentiles that's many of us maybe most of us you see jesus didn't just come for the people of god the jews the nation of israel He came for everyone, and that's the point of Epiphany, the revelation of Jesus to the Gentiles. And I'm thankful that God did reveal him to all of us. I think you probably are too. Well, so we've talked about Jesus as grace and truth. We've talked about how important that is that that we experience that grace and how much we can have confidence in the truth talked about the wise men, the Magi coming. And it's also the beginning of a calendar year this weekend. And as you're thinking about that, a lot of people make resolutions. The wise men resolve to go find Jesus. Well, that's not exactly what I'm talking about. Most of us make resolutions to change some part of our life that we want to improve. Maybe we want to eat less, or maybe we want to eat more. I don't know. Usually I hear people talk about wanting to eat less. Maybe you want to watch less television or maybe you want to watch more. I don't know what your particular idea might be. But a lot of people get an idea that they want to change something. And a lot of times people make these big goals for themselves that they're going to change huge parts of their life and um, make a big difference. Well, I do want you to make a difference. If there are things in your life that you can change to make a difference, I'm here to cheer you on. But I want to suggest an idea And it's just an idea, you can take it or leave it, but I think it might be helpful to us. Instead of making a big, grandiose goal, why don't you think about what in your life you could change by 1%, just a little bit, that could make a big difference. So, for example, if you have trouble getting out the door and headed out to work or your responsibilities in the morning... You could change something by 1% by getting everything ready the night before to make the morning better. That would be a small change, a 1% change. Uh, it's the, the only change really is you're doing things the night before instead of the morning of. 1%. Maybe you want to watch less television. Well, instead of saying I'm going to leave the TV turned off every night, maybe you will say I'm only going to watch 30 minutes or an hour. That could be a 1%. It's not an all or nothing that way. So think about other things in your life. I don't know what they might be. Maybe you want to read the Bible and you, I'm going to read the Bible through in a month. Well, you can do that. I've done it. Or you might just say, I'm going to take a 1% step and just start in and read a little bit to get started and do it every day. But think about 1% can change a lot of things and the results can be bigger than the 1% if you change the right 1%. So give yourself an opportunity here. Think about that. If you want to eat less, think about how could I eat 1% less? You don't have to starve yourself. Just try it. Well, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and you've been listening to Faith Is. And I have faith that you can do that 1%, by the way. But mostly I have faith, and I want you to have faith. We all want to have faith. Because faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Let's trust him. We'll be back next week.